Happy Friday, everyone. This is Brady Volp, founder of the, Nim- of the Volp Firm and NimbleVest. Uh, we're back with Get Your Tech on our show on all things Doxis. Uh, today with us again is uh, John Downey. Uh, John, thanks. Welcome to have you back. How you doing, John? Thanks. It's always good to be back. Where's my uh, tagline? Well, I'm not the uh, prognosticator or procrastinator or the uh, crystal ball. <laughs> no, I, I didn't get a tagline for you today. I, but, uh, you've been traveling recently, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, just got back from Atlanta, so I was at the uh, the Cisco SA facility in Lawrenceville. Doing a little bit of Doxus free one testing and prepping for SET Expo coming up in what uh, end of September, early October, New Orleans. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. Expo is upon us already. Um, last week I was at the uh, Cable Labs Summer Conference, and it's actually the the last summer conference that's going to be up in uh, at nine thousand feet in uh, uh, this little town up there. Winter. It's, uh, it's where everyone goes skiing up Keystone. <laughs> Keystone, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Um, so, uh, winter, winter, the uh, summer expo was uh, uh, quite nice. You've attended there before. Uh, I don't know yeah, if anyone's not attended um, Cable Labs summer expo or summer conference before. Uh, a lot of cable operators get together, vendors get together. Some of them have booths. There's a lot of uh, information about you know basically where the industry is heading. Uh, what's going to be happening in the future? Is that um, cable? Cable Labs is going to be moving their conference uh, to basically uh, off of off of the men, men, mountain at eleven thousand feet, and they're going to be having it. Uh, it it's not going to be a summer conference anymore. It's going to be called this forefront, and basically uh, the first day will be for cable operator members only. The second day will be for uh, a lot of other people to participate, but they're trying to bring in a lot more uh, technology companies and decision makers to talk about basically, you know, how we're going to, how technology is leading into the future. So you can go to this website, uh, ForefrontEvent.com, and it'll tell you everything that's be going to be going on. They're also moving it a little earlier in a year. I think uh, it's, yeah, it's June 23rd is the first day. Um, so that's uh, a change at, at Cable Labs. Um, uh, there was some also some other uh, you know, fun things that went on. Uh, if, if you saw the uh, LinkedIn conversations, I did get a shirt. So uh, on PNM, uh, apparently, if you uh, if you talk to vendors enough and tell them that they need new things, new products in their technology, uh, they'll uh, and you and you really ride them hard enough, they'll eventually give you a shirt. So. Uh, I figure if I'm going to keep doing this because uh, I'll be in full f- in shirts for the rest of my life then because I can definitely uh, complain and say, hey, you need this P&M feature and stuff like that in there long enough. So <laughs> that was how I got the shirt. <laughs> so um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of discussion at Cable Labs about Cisco actually this year, John, and I kind of wanted to find out. There's also an announcement that Cisco is um, getting out of the FDX uh, business for some time to come. And, uh, you know, so I, I, those kind of announcements were interesting. But there, there was also a lot of other talk at uh, K- the Cable Lab Summer Conference just about what's changing in the cable industry uh, for as far as virtual a- virtualization and stuff like that. So 
John, I know you're dialing back in. I was hoping to, to get sort of your feelings about you know where Cisco's heading, where the industry's heading because of the changes that we see going on right now in, in the industry. So as soon as you get back on there, you can let us know. Um, but after that, uh, after coming back from Cable Labs, and as you said, we've got the uh, Cable Tech Expo coming up. Cable Tech Expo is, uh, I think that's in, in uh, September, end of September, very last week in September. So uh, you back with us yet, John, dialing in? <laughs> so, okay, so I also opened up um, for questions um, in the Hangout channel uh, for the live events. So if anyone wants to ask questions while we're talking, please go ahead and drop that in the chat. And uh, still waiting for John to dial his phone here. Um, other things that happened at Cable Labs that were interesting, um, again, everything's under NDA, so most of the things can't be discussed uh, unless it was published. Um, however, we... Um, oh, there we got John back. John, you there? Yeah, we were just talking about me losing my connectivity, yeah. and there it goes. <laughs> I was filling the gap. Um, so Cisco, let's talk about Cisco. Those are the, the interesting things. You know, you guys are getting out of FDX. Uh, there was a lot of talk about, you know, maybe not even continuing to produce the CBR8. Um, so what are what are you hearing, John? What are you seeing on your side? You know, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's a surprise that things are always moving more towards uh, software. It's almost like the Microsoft model, right? Yeah. Uh, it's easier to implement software and do things in the software, cloud native. That's where things are going further away from hardware. Uh, the hardware you can buy off the shelf. That's why you're looking at uh, uh, server, like server farms and cloud native where your CMTS code is software and it could be running on a server somewhere. Uh, and then everything file layer is simplified and you just move that where you need it. Uh, that's why you do remote Fi or in some cases remote Mac Fi. But the software, um, and that's where things are kind of going. Now, the CBR8 is always going to be there. I mean, there's the the direction is not on hardware. So as far as I know, the CBR8, um, I don't know that there's any more hardware plans for the CBR8. Like there's no new line card being developed uh, with different service groups because the line card digital pick, the physical interface card, uh, we have a 100 gig card now that just came out, that would be more than enough capacity to feed a router, a switch, an optical splitter, to feed a bunch of RPDs out in the field. Uh, URF capacity in the Guam and OFDM, that capacity, the physical light capacity, is out in the field. That's the RPD. Uh, so that hardware is being developed, and that will be there. Uh, we did a prototype, which we'll show at STT Expo, which we showed at ONGA in, in June in Germany, I think it's kind of interesting. Instead of just flexible, it's part of the flexible Mac architecture, FMA, where it's not just remote Fi and it's not just remote Mac Fi. It's sort of remote CMTS, cloud CMTS, if you will. It's uh, the cloud native processing Mac and Fi all in one little component in the node. So you could cherry pick certain areas of your network that you need low latency, no need for timing, because it's all right there in the node. You don't need uh, the PTP. Um, now, granted, if we do mobile backhaul, we're probably going to need PTP anyway. But for most systems that just need faster DOCSIS and lower latency, they're not doing mobile backhaul. The flexible Mac architecture and this remote cloud native idea 
Um, Bitmite satisfies a lot of problems um, and satisfies the speeds that we need in certain areas. Um, FDX, uh, it's complexity, right? Uh, FDX, I've always said the limiting factor here is CPE, the customer premise equipment. Until I get a modem that has more uh, upstream and downstream capacity and gets rid of the diplex filter and allows upstream and downstream to overlap each other, um, there's not a push for FDX. FDX satisfies the upstream problem. That's the whole point. And so the question is, how bad is the upstream problem? Do I really need uh, 500 megahertz of upstream spectrum uh, to provide one gig upstream? Now, I could probably do it with existing DOCSIS 3.1 spec and existing DOCSIS 3.1 modems. The spec says 204, 258 diplex filter, um, not really as a may or a must, but as, as a may, but there are modems that you can buy today that have 2.0 downstream, 2.0 MA upstream, a 204, 258 split. Um, with that type of upstream spectrum, you could offer a one-gig service. Yeah, you really could. Uh, this is assuming you're doing lo-fi. I mean, that's the first step, right? You've got to go digital fiber. You can't be doing this with analog fiber. So um, I think people, you don't deploy technology for the sake of technology. <laughs> you know, you deploy what makes sense, and FDX looks great on paper, looks great for urban areas, but not sub-urban areas. Suburban. <laughs> suburban. Suburban. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> because if you do out in the, where I'm living, crap, man, at one mile, you're only hitting 20 houses. Dude, it would uh, just be if you had. So, you know, you can't do no point zero. In your area. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, that, and that's. You know what it is? It's like raw. Yeah, no, so I was going to say, I mean, some of what we heard at, um, that we've heard recently from operators is not everyone's looking at going to node plus zero. So I think that makes a, it makes a really big challenge for FDX if you're not going to go to node plus zero, because you pretty much need node plus zero for FDX. Yeah, I mean, there was talk about, you know, John Chapman talked about a node plus one or plus two, where we develop an amplifier with echo cancellation on the front and That's back the FDX end of the node, amplifier. right? You know, well, FDX amp. So yeah, was, I'm sorry, FDX. So we have an yeah. we have the FDX node. Yeah. So you would have to develop that amplifier. And that's John's way of trying to get the industry behind it to say, all right, someone step up to the plate, say, yeah, it's a good idea, and we'll develop it. Well, Cisco's getting out of hardware. So we're say, not we, we, but we, the don't, we don't we have a concept uh, of the FDX amp, but has anyone actually designed one and proved that it works? I I, I think it will I think that you can I don't think it'd be hard to prove it works. I think it would be someone has to do the market study to say it's supply and demand. If there's enough demand, someone's going to supply it at a good price. Now, I think what's going to come down to is if I put echo cancellation inside of an amplifier, one, what is the cost? That's number one. Two, what is the power draw? There is a big concern about how much power these devices take. You know, I, I didn't really put one and one and one together and make two in, in some regards. Like when you look at actual power of a node versus a line extender, the nodes are supposed to be under 150 watts. The amplifiers could be 30, 40 watts. If you do node plus zero and you get rid of all your amplifiers, but you have to put in more nodes, you could end up with a lot more power requirements than if you did node plus three. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Because yep. every node you put in, and you replace three or four amplifiers, that node is worth three or four amplifiers of power draw. Yeah, and, and we've seen that when... I mean, when you really have to draw it out and then add it all up. Yeah, and in in the areas where they put in node plus zero, it, it's a challenge. It's a power. It's a challenge powering all those nodes because you can't. You can reuse some of your old power supplies, but you ultimately end up needing to add more power supplies because the nodes draw so much power. Yeah, and they're farther apart. And if you had an existing coax that you're not using, you could use it just for the power distribution. Yeah. You know, you could figure out how to test all your power supply and still use it. But I mean, yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's still uh, a, a push in the industry uh, for the new marketing is 10G, right? 10 gigabit per second offering. Uh, and I think the push will be 204 megahertz upstream. ESD is the new word for extended extended spectrum doxes. 1.8 gigahertz, maybe up to 3 gigahertz. Um, obviously, when you go higher frequency, there's more loss in coax. But we're assuming we're getting less and less coax. That's sort of the assumption, right? You're going fiber as deep as you can. The coax is dropping less and less and less. Um, and you could, if you run the numbers, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I was a little nervous on the 204 upstream, upstream levels. But I think if we, with the added power of Dr. Friedel modems, I think we can make it work without the need for upstream AGC, which is, which is one of the concerns I have because you don't have AGC on the upstream. So you're going to rely on the modems to provide an automatic gain control. Yeah. So, John, that was actually, you did a, a remarkable job there of turning my original question into a techno, technical discussion. But I want to summarize. So, so, so basically, you guys, you know, you will be not doing anything in FDX for some time, which is what the, the technical article, the article from BTR said. And but the CBR8 still has plenty of leg room out there because it, it just fun, fundamentally has the capacity to keep going with Doxus 3.1 and fiber nodes and stuff. Is that is that a good summary? Yes, yes, yes. You know, you you said earlier we were talking how uh, I heard that the CBR8 is going to be shelved. I'm like, uh, that was a play on words. We are doing more shelves. <laughs> 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 has nothing to do with shelving the CBR8. So we, you know, we have the remote by shelf, which is a one RU compact shelf. Uh, and then we have this new HA shelf. It's the um, Smart 5 7200. We're resurrecting, resurrecting the 7200 word. And what it meant was 7272 service groups. But the HA shelf that we have is a remote by shelf that would work well for condensing a home site. Yeah. Like maybe you have, uh, you're, you, you buy a mom, pa cable company, and they have their own head end or hub site. You're like, you know what? I have a centralized head end with all this content. I can just run a digital fiber out there and really just displace all your real estate and put it in a remote by shelf and run all the smarts from my centrally located CMTF. So, and then, and then that shelf can still feed your analog if you really want to. You know? but so we have a HA shelf, we have a compact shelf, which is good for MDUs. Uh, you can rack and stack shelves. Uh, and then we have the regular RPD that, you know, remote by device that would go in the node. So uh, that that hardware is still there. We're still in the optical side, uh, but I believe Cisco is not going anywhere. You know, we sold the CPE to Technicolor. Um, we sold the video product off. Um, I was surprised we kept hats and amps for as long as we did. Uh, and as far as I know, we're getting out of that hardware side of it as well. So it's the CBR8 is still there. The shells are still there. It's more software-driven. Uh, CBR8, I, it's a product I do like. I mean, I wish 
<laughs> to be perfectly honest, I wish the CBR8 would have came out before we had to do the 10K with modular CMTS. Yeah. <laughs> and we went modular to integra- integrated. Mm-hmm. And now with remote five, we're going modular again. <laughs> All right, so let's get on to our topic for today, which is Doxis 3.1 Upstream, which I understand you've been doing a lot of testing with. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't a big push for 3.1 Upstream. Uh, we got a lot of best practices and feedback on Doxis 3.1 Downstream because people are doing it and they've been doing it. And it was mostly because of Spectrum. Well, and, yeah, upstream, and the, the big demands on the Downstream. So everyone, everyone says, yeah, I need more exactly. bandwidth on the downstream. It's really the upstream has been the lagger, but I, I think now we are starting to see a demand, a requirement for more, more bandwidth in the upstream. A lot of people doing YouTube, gaming, streaming their YouTube in, in the upstream. So it is, it is driving a need for more capacity in the upstream. Now, are, are you seeing uh, people doing, uh, how do I want to say it? actually sending video on the upstream is that what you're seeing or what you're saying you know youtube on the downstream and netflix on the downstream adaptive bit rate over the top video does create more upstream acknowledgements but i'm still wondering what is the killer app on the upstream is it home security is it slingbox is it is it some type of video on the upstream or you know i i I still don't know what the big killer app is. So I don't know that these are killer apps, but there's a lot of YouTube content creators. I mean, like right now we're streaming about 50 megabits per second in the upstream. As, as We're doing 46.9 megabits in the upstream. That's what I'm sending right now to YouTube as we create this content. Um, whenever, uh, wow. the, other, the other thing that's very, so that any YouTube creator that's, you know, creating like what we're doing right now, it's, it, you, you need about a 50 meg upstream if you want to do HD. The other thing that's real common is gamers. So that I, the article that I, that's coming out in Broadband Library in just a couple, uh, I don't know, a week or two, talks about the gaming industry. And this was also something that was talked a lot about at Cable Labs Summer Conference. It is a, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. A lot of the gamers make money by streaming their games. So what they're not only playing a game, which is driving a little bit of traffic, but the actual big traffic is when they're 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 doing a YouTube stream, live stream of their video that they send uh, either to YouTube or to um, a Twitch uh, network, which is it's another streaming network where people watch watch these games. And so every one of those streams is a, a you know significant amount of upstream data, depending on how what definition. Uh, they're sending that data. It, it is kind of ironic, is People don't just like to play games; they like to watch other people play games. Yeah. And it's a <laughs> yeah. A few weeks okay. ago, there was the uh, Fortnite uh, uh, championship, and I, I mean, there was you know one kid won three million dollars just for being really good at Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> so there's money in this stuff. <laughs> all that. <laughs> now all these kids think they can make money. It's one kid out of a million or, or a hundred million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just listen like we're ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but there's still money there. <laughs> so, no so that's, so now that's why yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, people, ca- operators looking at, uh, oh, using OFDMA in the upstream to increase that capacity. And I, I think it's, you know, so what are those challenges? Is it, is it just as easy as turning it on and all the modems work? So I, I think those are what operators are starting looking at right now. You know, one of the 
one of the things that's pushing OFD main docs through an upstream is 85 megahertz upstream. You're adding more spectrum. If it's 42 megahertz, you're already limited. Um, I'm going to be a firm dissident <laughs> and not a proponent of PAFDM. A time and frequency division multiplexing, you could have three one modems starving out your three one modems if you're trying to share time. Uh, anytime you have a three one transmitting and then a three o back and forth, uh, you have to create guard time and them in the wire to to switch between the two, uh, and it's not going to be as efficient as you would hope. Uh, yeah, so we, I would we really about rather that. promote. Uh, yeah, we talked about that coexistence for a long time yeah. where they could. It was just going to be seamless, like magic, you know, where they can both live together. So what are you seeing? Is You're saying the three ones will take up more traffic. Is it because of overhead, or is it because three one are just dominating the channel? I mean, it would come down also code, how you code your scheduler. Um, but it would also come down to how many devices out in the field, right? There'll be an inflection point where the 2030 starts going through attrition and there's three more three, one devices being deployed. I would rather see customers allocate spectrum for three, one and three, Oh, just like we do downstream, but that also comes at a price of spectrum. Um, and then you had a question, how many devices are going to use that spectrum? Like how many devices are actually out there? Um, 3.1, obviously, is more efficient. You have more modulation to work with, you know, more modulation profiles. You know, signal carrier qualm, ATDMA, 64 qualms is the most we can do, but 3.1, we can go all the way to 4K qualm. Now, is that a pipe dream? Yeah, in some cases it is, but if I do a remote phi, I get rid of the analog link. I don't have laser clipping anymore in the upstream. I have much better MER. Um, now, granted, uh, I could have a 35, 36, 38 dB upstream MER, and I could get away with 1K qualm on the upstream, not 64. So it's more efficient. I get more speed. Uh, with an 85 megahertz upstream, we foresee customers sticking with 4 ATDMA below 40 megahertz, and then from 40 to 85 doing OFDMA. But then that means you're going to 85 megahertz. What we're seeing with some customers is it's not the amount of modems in the field that have filters already in the modem, what about the houses that have house amps that cut off at 42? They could be active downstream and passive upstream, but they basically have dietlex filters in them. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I've seen a you lot of that. I'm going with that. I've seen a lot of that with uh, the house amps. So we, I, I work with some systems that are 85 megahertz, and they really don't know which house amps are going to be there. Right now, they're doing only 8 TDMA, but they're doing, you know, SC QAM in the upstream, but they're doing 8 SC QAM channels. And so they're they're trying to balance that where, you know, they have different service groups, and they have like a four-channel bonding group in the upstream and eight cha- and an eight-channel bonding group. So the houses that have only, uh, that have the, the house amps in them. So you have a you know that house amp has a 42 uh, megahertz diplex filter, even though they have an 85 megahertz return. So the modems that are behind that house amp can only bond to four channels rather than eight channels, and then it's sort of like a partial mode sometimes that they the modems run into if they don't lock on to the four channel bonding group in the upstream. So that is it's it's a it's a challenge. It's it's interesting because it's not something you really uh, you know I had not thought about before until I actually started seeing the modems in partial mode behind the house amp well you think about it a 42 megahertz filter house amp it's not a brick wall filter it's going to have a roll off 
you're almost better off because the two O modem is kind of modems are kind of dumb, right? I mean, they lock on downstream, they get UCD for upstream channel descriptor, and they might try to range on a, an upstream at say 44 megahertz, even though the built-in modems diplex 42. So you're better off even putting a single carrier qualm, say between 40 and and maybe 50. You know, you could put four six four megahertz wide channels from 50 to 85. From 55 to 85. Yeah, and that's the... So you could make your own little no-man's land between 40 and, say, 50-something. Yeah, and that's the issue we're seeing right now, where they have eight SC qualm channels stacked back-to-back. When you look at it in a PNM application, you see that that, uh, fifth channel right around, you know, above 42 megahertz, right in that area. Um, A lot of the times, the modems are able to lock onto that fifth channel because of pre-EQ. They have the transmit power mm-hmm. jacked way, way up in order to lock onto it. Uh, but you also get a large number of uncorrectable code word errors on that fifth channel because it's it is in partial mode. It's not it's not dropped off. It's still locked onto there, or it's in it's not partial. It's impaired mode because you're still transmitting data yeah. over it, but you're getting very high uncorrectable code word errors on that channel. So it's a, in that case, okay, like so free is doing that. too good. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, you could have a 2.0 modem lock on that fifth upstream, and you don't want it to. Um, you could have a 3.0 modem lock onto it, and because of how you made your upstream one groups, it might say, oh, I'm on, I'm on this upstream four, which is the fifth upstream, and because that is part of this four-channel bonding group above 42, let me try to bond on these other upstreams I have no chance of even seeing so it goes into basically single-channel bonding. So how big of a space should really you... really want to relegate that device to the first floor. How big of a space should you allow between the I'm thinking 40 to, Well, when you think about it, uh, if you're afraid 85 megahertz is going to have some roll-off at 85, you might say, well, my 6.4, the highest I want to go is, say, 82, 83. You take four of those 18 MAs times 6.4 times 4, 25.6. So 83 minus 26 puts me where? 50-something, uh, uh, 54, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You can still easily fit four ATMAs yep. butted against each other at 52, 53, and still be under 85. No, but you have to... So that's you, still the, your four ATMAs, you want to keep before that below that 42 megahertz cutoff because of the house amps. Correct. Correct. So you have... Four below and four above. Right. And then four above, you're still giving yourself a little bit of uh, buffer space from 40 to, say, 50. Right. And that might be enough, 40 to 50. Just don't put a, a single-carry quant between 40 and 50. So what else have you learned from So your- then the question is, <laughs> so, so the question would there would be is at what point do you just get rid of all the 18 may above 40 and just make that OTMA? Yeah. And then no longer And that would come down to how many 3-1 devices. How many three one devices are in the field to take advantage of it? That's what it comes down to. So if I am doing higher downstream speeds, then obviously I have three one devices already out in the field. Then it's a good idea to maybe convert them to three one upstream as well. Uh, if you're off- offering one gig down, you're probably selling that with a forty or fifty meg up. Uh, it would be better to push them to three one spectrum on the upstream. And that will help alleviate them eating up the 3.0 spectrum and the 3.0 single carrier qualms that other devices have to use, 
which is a 2 ohm modem, than the other 3 ohm modems that have maybe lower speed, 10, 10 megabit per second. Yeah. And, and I'm getting more and more operators asking for 100 megabit upstream tiers, which that sounds like the sweet spot for 3.1 modems with their own OFDM channel. Um, how many 3.1 modems would you would you put on a 100 meg upstream tier? If, if, that, if we're I mean, using if, that, that if, OFDM channel above 42 to, nine, to uh, 85 megahertz. So uh, OFDMA, you keep saying OFDM. So, <laughs> OFDMA. Yeah. Um, so if, <laughs> so 40 to 85, uh, if we're doing OFDMA from 40 to 85 and we can get away with 1K qualm, uh, I think we estimate that could be worth like 300 megabit mm-hmm. per second, maybe more. And you're offering 100 meg service. You so did. your pipe is 3x of what you're offering. Um, heck, so obviously three people can use that pipe at the same instant Full in time. time. You do. And because it's so big, yeah, stat muxing could be 20 to 1. You know, maybe I wouldn't push it that far. Maybe I'd say 10 to 1. So 3 times 10 is 30, 30 customers subs. could have 100 meg service. Yeah. Which is which is pretty pretty realistic off of a uh, and that's that's not unrealistic, right? Yeah, that's very yeah. realistic because you're you're probably you not going to have the, the the upstream. Yeah, yeah, you won't have two hundred customers in the service group. It's very so thirty very of realistic. them. If you, if you got if you got if you got that many doing a hundred megs, you're going to be selling a pretty good uh, pretty good service. Hundred megs on the upstream, so that's very good. Yeah, yeah, it's a good problem to have, right? <laughs> it's a good problem to have. You're selling a higher service to usually at a higher price. Mm-hmm. You would hope so, right? So, so this is this is one of the things we're addressing now is is their realistic nature of HFC plants, uh, house amps, how to identify where these house amps are. The modems report their capability, and we can tag off of TLVs and other stuff like that. And we have SNMP capability to the modem, um, so we can see which modems have built-in filters. The problem we're also seeing though is some modems have capability reporting of 85, but their own internal filter might be 42. And maybe they're not reporting a filter, they're reporting the chipset. So the chipset might be 85, but the actual filter is 42. And those devices are hardware filters. Mm-hmm. They're not software controlled. Now with the 3.1 modem, a lot of times there's software control to change the filter via software. The 3.0 modems, typically it's a hardware device. You know, you bought that modem with a 42 filter. Yep. You're not just going to sit there and let's change it to 85 on the fly because it might not work. Yeah. So that's one of the things we're dealing with. And then the house amps, obviously, is another issue. So that's one um, aspect of this whole how do I plan for 3.1. Well, spectrum is one of the first things. RF is one of the first physical layer, right? Uh, the other thing I'm finding out is um, does upstream impairments look the same as downstream? For instance, you know that, and we've gone through this before, a correctable effect on the downstream is not something we should be tracking anymore for OFDM because you could have a 100% uncorrectable or 100% correctable effect, but there's really no problems. One, it's corrected. Two, how we do FFT of this entire 192 megahertz uh, OFDMA downstream channel and the LTPC, the time and frequency interleaving, all these things we're doing in this mathematics that we could have one bit in error, but it's showing up as a 100% correctable fact. Yep. 
So I know Ron Rack has written some stuff about it. So then I, I went back and said, well, do you think we might have something different on the upstream? Because the upstream is bursty and it comes in chunks of many slots and frames, um, and then we do this averaging of MER uh, within a frame or a slot, I don't think we're going to have the same type of response on the upstream, meaning we're not going to see a 100% correctable effect on the upstream. But I would still have a word of caution to say I wouldn't use correctable effect as an indicator of plan health for OFDM and OFDMA. I would still rely on MER and uncorrectable effect. Uncorrectable effect is drop packet. That's the bottom line. Um, so I'm looking at uncorrectable effect and MER. Correctable effect uh, is still something I don't think is a good indicator of plant health because OFDMA upstream and OFDM downstream is different than single carrier qualm. Mm-hmm. Also, I looked at ingress cancellation. Now, ingress cancellation from the Broadcom upstream chip perspective schedules many slots of time to measure the noise floor. Well, that's great for a single carrier qualm, but for OFDMA, it's, it's many, it's subcarrier. So it's a little bit different than single carrier qualm, meaning that if I have an impulse noise event or not even impulse noise, let's just say it's CB radio at 27 megahertz or some type of narrow steady state ingress that's only 100 kilohertz wide. Well, how many subcarriers are actually going to take out? Well, if the subcarriers are 25 kilohertz, you're really only taking out four subcarriers. It's 50, you're going to two. <laughs> it's not like you're taking out the entire channel. Like single-carrier qualm, it would knock out the entire channel, yep. even if you only knocked out a, a little portion of it. But for OFDA, you're only knocking out a couple subcarriers, which you're really, it's not that big of a deal. So there really isn't the same concept of ingress cancellation for OFDMA. Um, but with that in mind, I'm also feeling that when you decide to do upstream profile management where we call it IUC, interval usage code, where I go from, say, 1K qualm back down to 64 qualm, should I ignore a certain percentage of subcarriers? For Cisco, today, we ignore 0%. I'm kind of leaning towards maybe we should ignore 1%. That way, real narrow ingress knocks out one or two subcarriers I'm not changing modulation just because that one event or just that small portion of, of subcarriers is affected. So Does that you, make sense? It, it does. But you just hit on something in, in, that I want to I come back to because you said when we decide to do profile management in the upstream. Right now we have multiple profiles that we send to modem. So, you know, 4096 qualm if there's no impairments. And then if there are some impairments, it might be 1024 qualm or 512 qualm. They can drop down to use lower order modulations in the downstream. I just had a conversation yesterday uh, on in the upstream when we were talking about OFDMA and and there was some question as to whether or not vendors are using more than one profile in the upstream. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you that because she said when we decide to start using different profiles in the upstream. So are we only are we stuck to one profile right now in the upstream uh, for OFDMA? No, no. Uh, what what I think we're stuck with is it could be a modem issue, it could be a CMTS code issue. Uh, is we're seeing two IUCs or two modulations possible, and the modem at this time is using IC13 as a registration IUC. Which is QPSK. And that's usually going to be lower, like 64 qualm. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's usually 64 qualm. 
So for, IUC for registration. Is, is, yeah. Now, you might be talking about the uh, initial ranging. Initial ranging is QPS. Initial ranging. Because yeah, we just went through yeah, this yesterday. Yeah. So you might be thinking initial ranging. Cause, yeah, you have pilots, you have fine ranging, initial ranging, you have boosted pilots, you have uh, probes. But I'm talking about the actual IUCs used for the data traffic. Okay. Once the modem is online and sending traffic, uh, it might be using IUC 13, which could be 64 qualm. We might set it even lower to set a 16 qualm. Yeah. And once the upstream MERs, now the upstream MERs are at the CMTS, so we don't have to probe the modem. We just have to talk to the CMTS. The CMTS is already there. Everything's coming back on the upstream. We look at the CMTS. We look at the upstream MER readings for all the subcarriers and say, all right, you've exceeded certain thresholds for certain modulation, so you are a good candidate for this next IUC that the user configured, maybe IUC 11, was um, 512 qualm or 1K qualm. So the CMTS can make the decision, yeah, you're a good candidate, so yeah, move up to a different IUC. But is this like dynamic modulation profiles where you can bounce up and down depending on the SNR, correctables and uncorrectables? Correct, correct. But dynamic modulation usually is on a per upstream basis, so it affects everybody. Here you're talking about individual modems. Mm -hmm. Okay. So don't think about the noise funneling effect. Think about modems having group delay, micro-reflections, individual problems, individual modem problems. Yeah, it's a little bit different on upstream, right? Like downstream, you could definitely have different MER. Oh, yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? On downstream. But upstream, everything funnels back. So everyone usually has the same carrier-to-noise ratio, but not necessarily the same MER. Do you understand mm-hmm. where I'm going with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, carrier-to-noise ratio is just noise funneling, and everyone has this in the CMT usually at zero, uh, so you all have the same noise floor. You don't all have the same MER. Because nope. MER is indicative of group delay, micro-reflections. Mm-hmm. Some things pre-Q will take care of, but it might not be perfect. So individual modems are different distances away. They incur different micro-reflections, uh, different cabling issues. In-home wire. Uh, so every time they transmit, from... they might have different... Yeah, yep. exactly. So it's not really an ingress problem. It's a, it's a timing or a group delay or something of that nature. So there, that one modem could have bad MER. And maybe it's only a portion of its upstream spectrum. Well, the CMTS might say, well, you've exceeded this threshold for IUC 11, so you can't do 1K anymore. But looking at your MER readings, I see that uh, maybe you can do IUC 12, which was uh, 2D6 qualm. Uh, well, now you're actually lower, so I'm going to drop you down to basically the maintenance IUC, which is 13, and I'm, I'm relegating you back to 64 qualm. And now I see you're even lower, and I'm getting a lot of uncorrectable fat, so I'm going to mark you as partial. So now I'm not even going to let you send traffic on that OFDMA anymore. I'm going to maybe push you back to your single carrier qualm. Because a lot of times we're recommending that when you do an upstream bonding group, you actually bond with a single carrier qualm and the OFDMA. You don't just do OFDMA by itself. And that's on a per modem basis? Yes. Okay. Same thing for downstream, right? Yes. Yeah, downstream is on a per modem basis as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I yeah. thought the downstream wasn't I, I as mean, granular. I thought the downstream, you grouped the modems. You clustered the modems. No. Uh-uh. Okay. Uh, the modems are individual modem basis. I mean, uh, one modem could be doing 4K qualm. Another modem might be doing 2K qualm. Now, the modems, they hold on to five um, 
um, what do you want to call it? Profiles? Mm -hmm. I've, um, what's the word for it? I guess you could say profiles. Yeah. 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 It's my profiles, downstream my profiles. And zero is your data profile. And all the motors register on profile zero. Then once they start reporting downstream MER, then the CMS can upgrade them to one of the other four profiles that he uploaded during registration. And one could be 4K QAM, 2K QAM, 1K QAM. You might have a mixed profile for downstream. Um, so that's how the downstream works. But that's on an individual downstream basis, individual modem basis. It's not in, in groups. Okay. I stand corrected. Understand? Yep. Good? I do. <laughs> I think I think correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, Roger. <laughs> Clearance plans. <laughs> um, some other stuff. I mean, so that's you know, the more experience we get, obviously, we'll come up with more best practices. You know, you have to have some practice to have a best practice. Uh, but there's not a lot of people deploying yet uh, because the demand is not really there. It could be spectrums not there. And even if Spectrum's there, it might not be the demand for upstream. You mentioned 50 meg service. I don't see a lot of people offering 50 meg service. It's like 30 meg, it's the 20 meg, 10 meg. Um, until we start offering 50 to 100 meg, maybe there's no demand for OFDMA yet. Uh, but it is there. It's in the CPE, so the modems have the capability. The CMTS has the capability. Um, it's a matter of having the Spectrum to allocate for it and utilize it properly. So it is pretty robust. It will, uh, it's just like the downstream OFDM, OFDM compared to single carrier QAM, it's more robust. Everyone is more robust. The spec and the technology is more robust than Doxus 2.0 and 3.0. So it's, it's no reason why we shouldn't be using it and utilizing it. So ha- have you seen, I mean, do you have good data on and, and like I, what, what the minimum MER is to support 1K QAM in the upstream, 5 512, QAM, et cetera. Do you have good data on that? Because I know, like, originally in a downstream, we thought we needed some number, and we actually did better for MER than what we, we needed. Did you see the same in the upstream? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because I, I thought the same thing is the table that the 3.1 spec has in, in, in the spec itself, Cable Labs, you know, look at the Cable Labs spec, Production three one. There's a table, uh, table seven dot one or whatever that table is, and it lists the different modulation and the different breakpoints of MER. And we know with the technology with Ford air correction and and low density parity check and time and frequency interleaving that it's probably about sixty dB conservative. So in the CMTS we can have offset to that table because in our CMTS we use that table as the default breakpoints. And what we know from best practices and actual experience that it's about 60 dB more conservative than it needs to be. So I'm like, well, what are we doing on the upstream? Well, it turns out we're using the same exact table. The same breakpoints <laughs> were specified uh, even on the upstream. So you just calibrate it to that there table is no CMTS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, um, we know, I know from experience that single carrier qualm, ATDMA, 64 qualm will break under added white Gaussian noise, uh, meaning uncorrectable facts are incrementing about a 23 dB MER. So I always set my break point for 24 dB, so I give myself 1 dB headroom. Mm-hmm. And then I usually have dynamic modulation based on 
at 24 DBMER and 1% uncorrectable fat. So I do a logical end function. So even if MER is uh, cosmetically wrong, I'm still looking at uncorrectable fat anyway before I make any decision. That's for zero-carrier qualm. And Reed um, Solomon. Because OPMA, yeah, correct. So because OPMA is more robust than the single-carrier qualm because of the technology, I don't know that 23 dB would be the breakpoint. The question would be, is it 6 dB better? Is it 18? Is it 19? Is it 20? Uh, that I don't know yet. Uh, and you can't make a blanket statement if you're just saying that of like Gaussian noise, because what about group delay? What about microflexions? What about impulse noise? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of different variables that would need to be vetted out to say, all right, what's realistic? Now, you might say, all right, if I baseline it, the break, the break point could be under 20 dB, so be it. But I would still want any decisions made on uncorrectable fact. Yeah, and I think but in the upstream we have I always like, we have a lot more impairments than what we a lot different impa- a lot different type of impairments than what we typically see in the downstream, like impulse noise or you know some of the different things that we typically wouldn't see as much in a downstream. But the upstream's so much more challenging of an environment. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then that that uh, it takes one customer right with ingress yeah. to knock everybody else out. It's that yeah. noise funneling effect. The other thing that I I'm, was curious about is there's something called boosted pilots on the upstream. And I was confused that I thought the pilots were like this fine ranging where the pilots were dictating the level at different frequencies. On the OFDMA upstream, you can actually specify the initial ranging frequency. By default, Cisco sets the initial ranging at one-third up from the lower band edge. So if I'm doing 40 to 85, one-third up would put me at uh, 45, one-third, 15, at 55 MHz. So the initial ranging would be at 55 MHz. But you have the capability to set where you want that initial ranging to happen. And you might want it lower, or you might want it higher. If you put it higher, you realize there's going to be more attenuation in the cable plant. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that does worst-case ranging. And power level, maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe you have roll-off and it's not a good thing. So you might look at that at different, like, kind of philosophically, what is best? Do I do initial ranging at the lower end, the middle, or the upper end? So you have that capability to make that decision. For instance, we talked about the in-house amplifier 42 megahertz problem. Mm-hmm. If, if I do 40 to 85 megahertz OFDMA, maybe I should do the initial ranging all the way up at 65. That way, if there's a 42 megahertz filter in the house, I actually fail because you don't want the 3-1 mode to register. What's funny about that is we're finding that the initial ranging is QPSK or, yeah, I think it's QPSK, and it's so robust, it might still actually register even with a 42 megahertz filter in the house. It's almost like it's too good. Yeah. So, so we're still experimenting a little bit with that scenario of what, what should we do in this scenario? How do we identify a house with a 42 filter and it's a 3-1 modem in the house? You know, how do I identify where to send an RF tech to change it out? Like you might say, well, when they put the 3-1 modem in the house, didn't the tech check? Well, this is a case where the customer signed up for higher speed and you mailed them a 3-1 modem. So he did his own upgrade. He had a 3.0 modem. You upgraded 3.1. The tech never came out. 
the customer just plugs in the three one modem, you know, apples to apples, change cables, whatever. Um, but now all of a sudden it doesn't work or doesn't work properly. Right. So we need to figure out how to identify those houses to then deploy the technician to fix or get rid of the filters. P and M. Yeah, it, it, this is yeah, yeah, P and M. It is. It's P and M. I mean, if you could do full bandwidth capture and we can find the upstream spectrum also as part of full bandwidth capture, that would show us right away, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a, something that we've been looking um, at doing with one of our customers. So to, to identify where that roll-off is in the bandwidth throughout the network. So it's, it's actually something yeah, I think we can do full with, with full band capture lets you even, see where, yeah, it, where it rolls off. Yeah, because so. even if you don't have carriers there, the filter would affect the noise floor as well, you right? Yeah. Probably you have some noise, noise you could probably see the response of the filter. Yep, you can tell yeah. the noise floor. And, and, and I just... think don't the don't the the three one modems you could also tell the three one modem to send like a sweeping type of carrier on the upstream. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, that's something they're doing in the, the uh, not, not even with three one modems, but you can do it with three O modems and it's something that during doing as part of the SCTE working group seven on how to do sweepless sweep uh, with full band mm -hmm. captures. So it is amazing technology you can do uh, with P and M just e even, even with three O modems um, things like sweepless sweep uh, both in the forward but, but, and return. So you don't yeah, have sweep to do sweep would be like a, yeah, sweep. The sweepless sweep would be like a downstream just comparing, right? And even existing carriers. But I'm thinking on the upstream, I believe you can tell the modem you can to, yeah, but there's a couple of different things you can do if you signal through the spectrum. If you have a bunch of SC qualms, you can look. You can just look at the in-channel frequency response across. You basically have a sweep, swept spectrum response. Another thing, uh, something that cable app technology, that cable apps developed, is you can take a modem, like a test modem, and scan it through the band, and and you'll get the a complete sweep of that modem scanning through the band in the upstream. So there's a lot of technologies that have been developed. Right. Um, especially for remote FI deployments, that basically eliminates the need for doing a, 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 an invasive sweep. Uh, it can be, it's all passive sweep, so you don't have to add that capability or technologies into remote FI devices. Um, can all be done with uh, DOCSIS. Because couldn't you have a 3 modem that's successfully locked on the bottom four HMA channels and then tell that? The sweep all eighty-five megahertz. Yep. Yeah. Because you have to have it online and registered first before you do any SNMP to it. So you have to be registered and online. But how do we? It's, let's say it's online below forty-two megahertz. How do I test above eight, above forty-two? I should be able to tell that modem to generate a sweeping signal all the way through. He's not doing eight single carrier qualms because he never could. Correct. But he's locked on successfully at four single carrier qualms below 42 megahertz, and I should be able to tell him, "Hey, send me a signal to 85." And then when I see the response, then I can say, "Oh yeah, he there's either has his own filter, yeah, there's a home or amp. there's a house amp, <laughs> there's a, a house filter. amp, yeah." yeah. And, and I did want to mention yeah. because uh, Brian Wilson brought this up a little while ago in a chat room uh, for people who do have 3.0 modems with a diplex filter in them. Uh, he indicated that uh, sometimes you just need to upgrade the firmware in those modems in order to get that that diplex filter switching to higher frequencies. Um, so that that's for for people who do have 3.0 modems that does have a switchable diplex filter. 
upgrade your firmware if it's not working properly. So thanks, Brian, for that. Agreed. Agreed. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's assuming it is a software changeable. So the other, the other thing I deal with is, uh, so the, back to the boosted pilots. I was concerned, if you look at the spec, it's a basically 10 tons of log of three. It's 4.7 dB boosted. So it gives you better response on these pilots, but the pilots are not used for levels. They're used for synchronization. So if you do boosted pilots, you don't have to do as many pilots because you're pretty sure the boosted pilot will get you synchronization more efficiently. So by doing less pilots, you have less overhead. So you get a little bit more speed. The question is, does that 4.7 dB boost in the pilot level does it affect my levels, my transmit levels, my receive levels? And it, it doesn't. So that's kind of the good thing. I was a little concerned that if I did this boosted pilot idea, if it would affect my own transit levels, and it doesn't. So that's kind of settled, satisfied my curiosity on that one. Because um, I'm always concerned about how do 3-1 modems actually register? What levels are reported? I, I, I told you this before. If you take a 3-0 modem, Remove it, put a 3-1 modem in its place. The transit level will show 6 dB less. Do you remember why I said that? 6 dB Say less. you have an existing location, mm-hmm. 6 dB less. It's 8 carriers you know why? 4 carriers? No, no. It's, it's, it's single carrier qualm, 6.4 megahertz. Mm-hmm. You take the 3-0 modem out, mm-hmm. and you put a 3-1 modem in, and you're still doing the same ATDMA channels. Transmit level is all based on, you know, you look at transmit up between 0, 1, 2, 3. We always report the transmit level of each individual channel. But the modem will report 60 dB less. Is, is this because of the, uh, so it's the total power over the I'm spectrum? You. No. I don't remember, no. John. It's still doing DOCSIS 3.0. Yeah. It's still DOCSIS 3.0 upstream, but the 3.1 modem. According to the 3.1 spec, if you have a 3.1 CMTS, and a 3-1 modem, mm-hmm. even if you do a 3-0 upstream, the modem has to report in 1.6 equivalent oh, yes. power. So take 6.4, divide by 1.6, it's really 10 times a log of 4. Mm-hmm. That's 6 dB. Okay. So if you replace a 3-0 modem with a 3-1 modem, you might see all your transmit levels drop by 6 dB, and then you're like scratching your head saying, what the heck's going on? Nothing has changed in the attenuation path but the reporting is different. So just keep that in mind. It's something to keep an eye on. It's just the reporting difference. It's still the same power. I say the actual so power even is the Cisco same, came though, right? out with a command. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's yeah. just reporting based on 1.6. Right. So just add 6 dB to the existing power level, and you're right back to where you were. Yeah, modem's transmitting the same power as the 3.0 modem. Receive at the CMTS is the same. SNR, MER should all be the same. It's just what the modem is reporting via SNMP to your monitoring system. Correct, correct. Even on our CMTS, we, we came up with another command. Instead of showcase modem 5, PHY, we do a showcase modem 5 norm for normalized, and then we actually normalize the power level based on the actual channel width. Yeah. I'm glad so you said... add the 60B back in for you. Glad you said so, PHY. I kept thinking you were saying FY. So, phi, phi, <laughs> Yeah, phi <laughs> for PHY, yeah. So, showcase modem PHY is, is the command you do to see modem transit levels. So if you do that showcase modem um, for the cable interface, you put PHY at the end, it'll show you the modem transit levels, the downstream levels, 
assuming uh, remote queries on. Uh, it'll show you upstream level uh, receive and transmit, uh, upstream MER, and a lot of stuff in that command. Okay. And I'm sure uh, Eris uh, Comscope, they probably have the same command as well. Yep. Eris Comscope. That, na- that name's just taken me a while to get used to. I still always use Eris. So, all right, John, we're at the top <laughs> of the hour. Is there anything else you want to go over? Are we... We covered it all. No, I, I, you know, I just, uh, yeah, covered enough anyway for now. <laughs> but uh, a, plug, a plug for SCT Expo. I know people going out to uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, September 30th, October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, yep. um, I'll be moderating a panel, a couple guys from Comscope, on the road to 10G. So that should be actually pretty good. We'll talk about FTX, talk about extended extended spectrum doxis, um, some ideas on how to get faster upstream speed, what type of speeds we're looking at. Um, so I, I think it's good for the industry. You know, we still have a lot of legs underneath of us. And, and the fact that we renamed what? Uh, FTX doxis 4.0 now, right? That's right. We have, Yeah, we didn't mention that, and I've been meaning to do that. We now have um, doxis 4.0 specifications, which I think is rightly so. Um, they, they've taken all the 4.x out of doxis 3.1 specifications FDX. and put that, yeah, the base, I'm sorry, the FDX out of 3.1 specifications and put that into the DOCSIS 4.0 specifications. Those have all been released. So lots of great reading for everyone out there who wants to get to download those and uh, Cures Insomnia and everything else. So uh, good reading for everyone. Um, yeah, and, and uh, for SCT Expo, that's it's amazing. This year is going by so quick. We're already in August. SCT Expo is coming up. We will be back. I think we have a show between... Now in Expo, uh, we're going to have PPC on to talk about um, some connectors and uh, you know connector issues and stuff like that. So we'll have them on between now and then. Um, and other than that, I, th- I think that's all. It's a wrap. So, John, thanks for your time. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Uh, please do hit subscribe. If you watch us on YouTube, hit the bell so you get notified when we upload new videos or do live podcasts. And if you will listen to us on podcasts, uh, please hit, uh, hit subscribe on your podcast catcher so you catch all of our shows. So everyone, so long. Catch John and I at uh, SCTE Expo. If you're there, we'll, we'll do something funny. So everyone take care and bye-bye. All right, we'll see you. Good discussion. <laughs>